From Cathedral Hill in St. Paul, Minnesota, this is The Other Eleven, a podcast about the good, the bad, and the ugly of mental and behavioral health. My name is Andy Tiemann. I'm here again with Jackie and Andrew Wainwright, and today, here on episode two of The Other Eleven, we'll be talking about root cause, the why behind those symptoms, not the symptoms themselves. It's the idea that the stomachache you're feeling might not be from dinner last night, or that back pain might not have anything to do with your posture. Sometimes that physical pain might be coming from somewhere else entirely, not your stomach, not your back, and no amount of Pepto-Bismol or Icy Hot is going to make it go away. But Jackie says it best, so here we go. Episode 2, The Other 11. Ready, set, I want to know why your stomach hurts, right? I want to fix that because if I fix that, everything else goes away. Then I've solved the problem for good. I don't need to manage your symptoms over a course of X period of time. I don't need to worry about your symptoms coming back because your symptoms are just the thing that tells your body you're not okay. It's not why you're not okay. And so if we don't talk about why you're not okay or why your stomach hurts and we don't fix that, then so, we're not making any progress. So it's not the way the system works today. I go to the I go to my primary care doctor and I'm like, my tummy hurts. Or I go to the emergency room with the tummy ache. They're not gonna they're not gonna do what you just said. What did they tell you when you said your neck hurt for five years? So I had uh, long term chronic neck pain. I did every scan, every test. I went through the uh, escalating process of primary care doctor to specialty doctor to pain doctor to injections. To uh, to maximally invasive procedures that could have had catastrophic impact on your overall health. Absolutely. With no actual physical evidence or diagnosis of a slip disc or a problem or something that was, you know, effectively treatable. So the best that they could do was pain management, try to treat the ostensible symptoms that were showing up. But they never once ever made a recommendation about looking at how you were feeling or why you were in pain. The only answer they ever had was treat the symptoms. Right. And I even had a, I think I had some sort of a concierge doctor at the time who I wanted to quarterback this thing. I was like, listen, I'll pay money for high quality healthcare so that, you know, all options are on the table, but healthcare runs the way that healthcare runs. And if the doctor works out of the hospital, I got channeled into a specific channel that took me back to the pain management doc. You also happen to have had the expertise of working in the field and had a caretaker or somebody that you're married to, me, that also worked in the field and knew how the system worked. In between the two of us, we still allowed that to happen. It's hard, even when you know how the system works, to not get big dogged by folks in white coats, right? There's a... you know, they're smarter than I am. They're taller than I am because I'm sitting down. They're standing up. They have a big white coat on. Uh, there's all kinds of power and balance. And even though I know tons about this space, I think because I'm not a doctor or I'm not an HR professional, I'm not this, that, or the other, that I don't have the expertise to talk truth to power to them. So when they say do this or that, or they told me at the time to go left and down the corridor and see the pain doctor, you know, that's what I did. I think also there's a lot of fear of what if, like, what if I'm dying? What if I have cancer? What if, I mean, I know that was, those were scenarios you were running, we were running together. And even though there was no proof of that, I think that's the fear um, that rules all the unknown. 
right? And even with the the evidence of no physical problem, it took years to decide that, hey, maybe this root cause issue is related to my mental health and what's going on in my life. And you, I, you were asked that question, not, you know, there were some doctors that I think asked you, are you stressed or how do you manage anxiety? And your answer at the time was, I'm not stressed. My life isn't stressful. Where, you know, I think I would argue that at that time our life was stressful or we had lots of reasons for things to be stressed about. But we didn't have that conversation because part of the symptom of the disease is this fear, right? You're just afraid. Your body and mind is responding in a way that you don't understand. I think, you know, from my perspective, you know, I would have answered, I think I answered honestly that I did not feel stressed. I didn't feel all the questions that I was asked. I wasn't trying to avoid uh, a diagnosis or give, you know, fabricated or false answers. I just think that when folks are sick, they're sick and they're not able to effectively diagnose or assess themselves. Like I'm just not in a position to tell you whether these are good spots or bad spots on my arm. I just have no idea. Right. And, um, I'm also, I'm coming from a compromised place because I'm already the voice inside my head. You know, I absolutely need somebody from the outside to weigh in and say, independent of whether you think you're anxious or these are signs of, you know, anxiety. You are incredibly stressed. You're suffering from anxiety and it comes out in these particular ways, you know, whether it's back pain, neck pain, all sorts of physical manifestations of aberrant behavioral health. Yeah. And it took us, I'll never forget when we went to meet with the pain doc who was managing your case at the time. And because we couldn't take it anymore, I couldn't take it. I, you couldn't take it. You were barely able to live in your own skin, right? It was not a good place. And I said, we're going to send Andrew to an inpatient behavioral health facility. And they looked at me long pause. Why would you do that? What? What warrants that aggressive next step in which you would take your husband out of the, you know, position of father and breadwinner and put him into a facility where he could work on himself? Like, what would you do that for? And it was because you couldn't keep on going that way, right? I couldn't watch you suffer and I couldn't help you and you couldn't help yourself. <laughs> but the craziest part was that this guy, this is all he treated. And not once, despite a lack of physical evidence and any other reason to pursue a path of physical treatment, he never suggested that path. Never. He never once thought that the right thing to do would be to figure out what the root cause was. No, I don't think he'd ever made that referral in his life, right? That wasn't in his care treatment, you know, progression model, that wasn't, you know, the next step, right? It wasn't the escalating code that, you know, you go to. But yeah, we rely on these people to keep us well. Here, this this is the silo of modern day healthcare, right? If you, and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to single anybody out, but if you have, you know, long-term chronic neck pain, I know the back surgeon wants to do back surgery. That's what he's trained to do. And unfortunately, for the other side, the psychologist wants to keep you in the chair, right? Because on some level, you're an annuity if you keep showing up every Monday at 2 o'clock. We gave Andrew the time and space to look at root cause issues. And guess what? He fixed them. Five years later, you know, better. Here I am. I'm with you guys sitting up straight on a back pain. I'm doing a podcast with you guys. Things are much improved. 
But here's what's super interesting, right? I've been in this field for a long time, surrounded by smart people in this field. And yet, I had the same ending as we're talking about the other 11. The other 11 traditionally have. They crash into the system, right? So even surrounded by folks that probably were in a position to recognize that I'm off my game or not doing well, could have raised their hand or said something, did something. I mean, nobody did anything wrong, but they just didn't have easy tools ready at hand that they were used to using to interject themselves into my space and stop me from progressing to a point where I end up at the pain dock, I'm basically crashing into the system, and I need to remove myself from the house, from the job, uh, from the world for two or three months and take time off, right? I had to go off and take a couple months to be by myself, to regroup physically, mentally, spiritually, and I had to leave two young kids and a wife and the business. So, you know, the Gray and I told the story just the other day. I'm in the attorney's office, and I'm signing the documents the day before I have to get on the flight, and the attorney's crying, and I'm crying, and I'm signing the documents, and I'm like, listen, whatever you guys decide when I come back, if the shop's closed when I get home, that's fine. Just take care of everybody and hug the kids. I mean, it's a mess. It's a mess. You know, it's not a scene that anybody wants. It's not a scene I want to have to put my attorney through, like the poor guy, right? He's like, I'm not sure I signed up for this when I went to law school, but he's sad. I'm sad. You know, it's like I crashed into the system hard and I had to abandon stuff in a hurry in order to try and rescue myself with the help of a lot of good people. And it was literally five years ago to the day you got on a plane. Oh, my goodness. Yes, went, it was. went to Karen. 2016. Yeah. yeah. The kids and I we got a two-year-old and a... I couldn't stop crying. I woke up every morning. I was crying. I was crying all day. You know, and I'm thinking John Wayne wouldn't cry. Like, you know, what would Bruce Willis do? This isn't how I'm supposed to show up. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't stop it. You know, I was just overwhelmed. Life was too big. The problems were too great. It was insurmountable. And I just, you know, I finally raised my hand. And these guys, I was like, listen, I can't go on. I can't be the husband you want me to be. I'm certainly not the CEO that this company deserves or the friend or the dad or any of the stuff. I was like, I give. I surrender. But on some level, I didn't like surrender early in the process. Like I was beaten, <laughs> no, you beaten into a state oh, of reasonableness. Like, you know, um, you know, I'm surrounded by a thousand of the enemy and my gun's out of bullets. And that's when I surrender. I mean, that's, that's not, that's not early in the fight. No, but I think it fueled, fueled this company and the need. And it certainly highlighted to me all the ways in which this system is so broken. If I can't get you the help that you need with this being my only job my entire life, having been raised by two physicians that have given me a great overview of how the system works, how to use it, leverage it, advocate for yourself. And I couldn't, with all that knowledge and power, help you get what you needed. I mean, if that's not enough fuel on the fire, then I don't know what is, because we were it. The buck stopped with us. Like there was no better person. There was no one I could call. It reminds me of uh, years ago, we did a focus group and we had a whole bunch of folks come in and sit in the room with the, you know, on the other side of the mirrored glass and asking a bunch of questions about the service and did they like and what worked and what didn't. And so anyway, one of the questions that got asked was, um, uh, you know, how did you end up getting involved? Like, how did this end up working for you? And she goes, well, here's, here's how this went. She goes, I've been struggling with, I think it was her son, for a long time, for like five years. We'd been in and out of treatment centers and done this and done that. And her husband and I done all these different things. And I had educated myself and I'd been to meetings and therapists. 
I was capable to use a football analogy of going 99 yards down the field, right? I could go all the way down there and I could look and I could see the end zone right there, right? It's just right there. But I was never, ever, this is the mother's words. She goes, I was never, ever going to cross over that threshold and do the last bit of work that I needed to do to get where I needed to go. She goes, I needed these guys to reach across, grab me by the lapels and pull me into the end zone. And if they had not done that, my son and I and our family would never have gotten the help we needed. We wouldn't have gotten well. So when she says this out loud, every single other person in the room raises their hand and they're all shaking their heads because they all had had the exact same experience. Those folks in that focus group would have been the other 11. They would have stayed sick until life intervened upon them. The other car hit them. They hit the other car. They did whatever it was that landed them in front of somebody that finally had to pay attention. But this idea that if we become aware that these other 11 are in front of us and we haven't, the other, the 11 years haven't expired yet, right? We don't have to wait the 11 years. Like if somebody puts these 11 people in front of me and it's year two, I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do to grab them and say, now's the time. Like we're not going to wait nine more years. Like we get, 27,000 days on planet Earth, right? That's all we get. Wasting time. I'm not about the wasting time, right? Which comes back to this impatience. We are absolutely impatient with behavioral health and the timeline that behavioral health runs on. Life's too short to treat symptoms. Absolutely. So the system we have, right or wrong, we can complain about this system. On some level, it's a fantabulous healthcare system. It does wonderful things. We take care of, you know, hundreds of millions of people. The scale of what we do in healthcare in the United States is just off the charts. That being said, there are places that it could be refined, right? And I think it's our responsibility when we become aware that this could be improved and it's fairly easy to improve it, that we should do everything in our power to try and make that improvement. I'm not saying like we should invent some magic pill that cures all five types of cancer. That would be great too, right? But that sounds harder. This sounds like a less of a lift, right? Because the tools exist, the knowledge to use the tools exists, and it's about remedying the application of those tools. I think that's well within our grasp. The only reason I know that is because we've been doing it with brute force manual labor for 20 years. When Mrs. McGillicuddy or Mr. Smith or wherever it happens to be, they get put in front of us, the only responsible thing to do is to force them to do the thing that they need to do to get better. It's what heroes do, right? I mean, the people that work here are heroes. They do the hard thing. They reach out to people that they don't know, strangers that they know need help, and they take a big risk and they offer help, hoping that it will resonate and against all odds, most often it does. And we save lives and people get better. That's helping the other 11. Next time on The Other 11, we'll be talking about rock bottom. The origin of the phrase, its definition, and how it's crept its way into common vernacular and casual conversation. And while, sadly, it might be more common than we all realize, there's absolutely nothing casual about it. Until then, be well, stay warm, and see you out there.